So I was told to read from Mark 4, verses 21 to 34. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With measure you use it. It will, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man could scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and, ri and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows, not, he knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade and the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts it in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown up, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants, and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such as parables, he spoke, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak the, to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples. He explained everything. All right. Good afternoon. Happy Mother's Day. We are in Mark chapter 4, and we, what Hanin just read were four more parables. Um, last week, we heard from Kent, the first, largest, longest, central parable to this passage. Now we've got four more shorter parables. These parables are all about the king, secrets of the kingdom being revealed to us. So Christ who came is bringing the secrets of the kingdom, and these are parables to help us understand the kingdom of God. So what I want to do before we start is to pray, because he said this, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. He said this in verse 9. We didn't read that today. But then he says it again, um, that those who have ears to hear, let them hear. And as he gave one of the parables about a lamp, it's meant to give us light. And he said at another place, those who have eyes to see, let them see or perceive or understand. So these things that we are hearing today, that we are going to receive, are not naturally understood we need the Holy Spirit to open our hearts. We need the kingdom of God to be so real to us that we can touch it, we can understand it, we can be brought out of our kingdom of man that we are typically used to of how things operate. We can understand and perceive God's kingdom so that we can follow him. Okay? So let's pray. I want everybody to pray for yourself that the Lord would open your eyes and your ears to hear, to understand, to perceive what he is saying to us about his kingdom today, right now, in this place. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have revealed things to us. We thank you that we are not left to grow up in darkness that we have created for ourselves in our sin and rebellion, but that light has broken in and that upon our ears has come the sound of the good news the coming of the Messiah. Now, Lord, these words to us are familiar. And the danger, Father, is that they're so familiar we may not understand, we may not perceive, though we hear them, they will not impact us. And so we pray, we ask of you, through your Spirit, that your kingdom and how it works and what you want to say to us about it today would be clear and that we would listen and that we would see and perceive and understand. Um, we pray these things in the name of our Savior, the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, Matthew chapter 4 represents right now the first full passage of teaching in the life of Jesus. We've seen miracles. We've seen him going around. But we haven't had Mark actually share a direct passage of Jesus' teaching. Um, there's only two in the book of Mark. One is this passage that we're going to finish today that Kent started us off with yes, last week, and then we're not going to come to another one until Mark chapter 13 where the, we have the 
Olivet Discourse. So he's speaking from the Mount of Olives in that time, right before his crucifixion. So this is extremely important that we listen to Jesus speak to us. We're seeing him act and do so much through Mark, but Mark, in the little bit that he says that Jesus said, this is so important that we understand. So in this passage, Mark gives five parables. These were sample parables. Jesus told undoubtedly many parables. That's what he says here in verse 33 and 34, that with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. The Holy Spirit causing Mark to tell us these specific five parables, and we want to understand why. We want to know what he is saying to us that we need to understand about the kingdom of God. and God's providence, these were brought to us. So when we think about parables, a parable, an easy way to know what a parable is, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's a little bit different than allegory, which are much more extended Stories like Lord of the Rings or Narnia where every character has some meaning and some person. Parables typically are meant to get across to us one big idea. And they can be as short as we see here as a sentence or two, or they can be a bit longer like the first parable about the different ground. But they are basically an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Now you may say, why didn't he just say it? Well, a couple reasons. First of all, parables are much easier to remember than just truth statements. So for example, um, we could say something like, uh, you know, evil should be afraid of retribution. We could say that, but it's a lot funner to watch Batman than to just say that simple sentence, and we remember it much better. So stories, you know, you might also say something like, um, Consistent work is better than bursts of hard work. But the story of the tortoise and the hare is much more memorable than that little saying, right? So stories become part of our being, they become part of our fabric, and they're more memorable in our culture. If you ask any person who has been in church for a while and they've read God's word, what does the mustard seed mean to you? And they will almost immediately say something about if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains, right? So using a parable about the natural world to illustrate something about the supernatural world is more memorable. So there, it also connects more. The second reason, I think, is that the natural world, the natural truth leads us to fully understand supernatural truth in a world of competing truth claims. That's kind of a long sentence, so let me explain what I mean there. The natural world is not changeable. You can't argue with it. It's just what it is. It's reality as we see it. But then there's a lot of truth claims in our world, and we don't know often, especially if you grow up in a certain culture, where the truth is in these competing truth claims. So the natural world that Jesus is using to illustrate and explain the supernatural world convinces us about what the truth is. So I'll give you an example. Um, we, grow, we are in a society, a time in the world, where the world has very opposing truth claims about gender and about the purpose of marriage and about is there any difference between genders, and today we're celebrating mothers. But is there a difference between mothers and fathers? Did God create them any different that they should be um, special and honored in a different way. Um, I, one illustration that came to my mind, I was at a wedding yesterday, or no, Friday. My nephew got married. The first of my parents, grand, 14 great, not great, the first of my parents' 14 grandchildren was married on Friday. And it was a beautiful country ceremony, you know, cowboy boots and jeans instead of suits and out in the woods at this really... A natural sort of place with a large lake, uh, well, large pond, small lake, and um, it's, it's really beautiful, really nice. And at one point, I walked away from the wedding party after the the nuptials, and and there was some, you know, celebration going on, and people had finished eating and they were celebrating. And I went on a walk around the property of this um, wedding venue. And I noticed these ducks 
Uh, they're, well, they're geese, I guess. And these two geese had five goslings. I looked up what a baby geese is. It's a gosling. And there were five of them. They had their down feathers. And as I got close, I think what was the male, I can't distinguish, but he was doing this head bobbing thing, you know, and opening his mouth and bobbing his head. Was, was it the female? You've, you've experienced it. Okay, so he's bobbing his head. And then I, what I think was the mother leads these five goslings into the water. The goslings follow, and the dad the whole time hissing at me. And I wasn't threatening him, but, you know, he knows a threat when he sees one. And he's following behind these five. And it's just this beautiful little family of geese. And I was just watching the natural world reflect the reality of this young man and young woman who were getting married and who were going to have their own goslings, and it was like everything at that moment was right in the world, you know? Because the reality of nature reflected these two young people who were not confused about how God created gender and marriage. And so, um, now I'm not, the point of the sermon is not to, to try to defend that point of what, you know, and go into the depths of nature and all the brokenness also that we find in nature, but the point is that at that moment, the nature that I was watching that God had created, if I was paying attention, could give me some idea between the competing truth claims going on about gender and family about which truth claim is correct. And so as Jesus is sharing these parables of nature, he's going to say some things that we know are true from nature. Now here's the amazing thing that I think about God is that he did not create, he did it, you know, Jesus didn't look around and say, uh, what about nature can I find here to explain this thing? And then he found something. It was like God, who created the world through his word, who was Jesus, and, and, the, and eternity past, created a mustard seed. And we're going to read and talk about this story in a second. The size of a grain of sand that would grow into a 20-foot bush that could hold the largest of birds that would come and make their nests in there for the very specific purpose that we could understand the gospel and the kingdom of God. It's not that he created the kingdom and then thought, well, how do we describe this? But he created the mustard seed intentionally to be so tiny that it would grow into something so large for us so that we can understand. And so here we have um, these natural stories that are looking. So the right way to understand is that, we, God, we know you created this world, and you created it good, so teach me to understand stuff I cannot see by stuff that I can see. Jesus said this to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. If you'll remember this conversation, Jesus said, if I explain to you earthly things and you don't believe me, how can you believe if I describe to you heavenly things? And he said, who can know the Father, except the one who came from the Father and who is returning to him. So Christ, who the very word of God made flesh, come from the Father, has this view of, this, of his kingdom that he is sovereignly working out that you and I cannot naturally see, but we can naturally see the world around us. And by the natural world, Christ is explaining to us his kingdom, and that is a great grace to you and I. So now Jesus has come to the world, and it demands an explanation. Who is this miracle-working, demon-casting, outer-outing, demon-outcaster? Who is this who has come? It demands an explanation, but how can we understand? Because we have never seen this before. In the 4,000-plus years of human history, they've never experienced the Word of God made flesh come among them. And there was all sorts of wrong ideas that they would have had based on their assumptions, um, based on just the fact that they had never experienced it. And so Jesus is going to explain to them, and graciously through Mark, from Peter, who was there, explain to us in our messed-up world today what his kingdom is like and how we should understand it. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take this in two parts. The first part, we're going to look at the four remaining parables and quickly 
give you an explanation of what I think Jesus is telling us here about the kingdom. We're not going to do a lot of application um, to our present world, but just explain what makes each parable a unique explanation of the kingdom. The second part, we're going to see what's not unique about them, but what unites them, all five of these parables, into one picture that we should act upon, that we should change our minds about some things in, by way of application. So, to start with, let's look at verse 21. We have the parable of the lampstand. This is the second of the parables. And he says this in verse 21. Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. So what the disciples didn't understand at this point is what is Jesus doing here and why does he keep telling these demons to not not to be quiet when they say you're the Holy One of God, you know? And why does he forbid people from going around to talk about him at this time? And so he gives us this illustration of a, of a lampstand, and he says that the reason for a lamp is that it would shine and give light to the whole house. Now, Jesus is the light of the world. And as he came into the world, he's telling them something about the intention of the kingdom. So that's what's unique about this parable. That's the first thing. The parable of the lampstand explains, explains the intention of the kingdom. The intention of the kingdom is that God intends to light the whole world through Christ. Um, he is not coming to be a hidden sort of secret society. He is not coming to be a sort of, you know, a Masonic sort of ranks where you get more and more knowledge like the Gnostics believe, that if you get deeper into them, you, then you'll get secret knowledge. There's nothing that's going to be secret here. Jesus is going to be put on a lampstand, but there is that moment when you light a lamp where you cover it and you protect it for a moment. Now, it's a brief moment because you have to protect it from wind so that the light takes hold. And this is what I think Jesus is saying. In that same way, there is a short time where his light is not um, as bright as it will be, but we're going to see that he also says to the disciples in Matthew chapter 5, let your light so shine that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So the good news is, the news of the kingdom is that it is intended by the Father to light the whole world. Now, that's fairly simple, but it's very important that these disciples know that the reason he was calling them as disciples was that they were going to have an integral part in that lighting of the world um, through their preaching. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he says that you are my witnesses, and he tells them that they're going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. We could do an Old Testament Bible study and look back at how the coming of the Messiah would be a light to the nations that would be for the joy of all nations of the world. So Jesus wants them to know, he wants us to know, the intention of the coming of Jesus is to bring a light to all of the nations of the world. So that lamp and that, that, that the room that he's talking about is the world, and that light is Christ. By extension, it is, you could say, the church, or those who are his followers. Moving on quickly, the second parable he's giving him is the parable of the measures. Read with me here in verse 24. Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, on the surface, this seems like unfairness. It's an inequality of outcome, right? But what is the reality here that Jesus is explaining is there's an, there's an equality of opportunity. And the equality of opportunity is that while he is here, you can take as large a measure from him as you want. He says, he says, what measure you, and in King James, I grew up reading that version. So in the King James, it says, what measure you meet, 
or what measure that you measure, it will be measured to you. So let me give you an example. In traditional societies, they did not have, you know, Walt Kroger or wherever you shop where you get a package of whatever it is. You don't get a, go get a bag. We don't even pay attention to weight a lot of times because you just grab a kilo or pound of rice, but you don't necessarily, well, I don't. Jillian's like, yes, of course I do, but I, I don't. If she sends me to the store to get rice, I will get a package. I don't even pay attention to how much it is. But when we lived in North Africa, there was none of that. We would go to the market that would gather two times a week. People would bring in their produce from the countryside, and you would have to tell them, I want one kilo of tomatoes. I want two kilos of onions. And you would have to measure. You would tell them the measure you want. And so uh, this, this idea of measurements and the measuring that you measure is going to be very easily understood by the people there. I think from us, we are a bit removed from our agriculture so that we don't understand so much about personally making the measurement ourselves. But um, you, you have all sorts of measurements from, a, you know, we have tablespoons, but how many of you would go to the market if you've been to a traditional society where they do this and say, I would like a tablespoon of this or that? You don't, right? You say, I want a, well, in, in, in our English measurements, you have bushels. That's the size that you want, right? You want a bushel of green beans, or what we do usually in weights. So what Jesus is saying here, if you look in verse 24, is um, what, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So imagine you're going to the market, and, you, and here Jesus is the one that you're going to receive in his kingdom. So there's Jesus in his kingdom, and it's, it is open to you. But it's going to cost you everything. It's, not, it's free, in a sense, because it's grace that's giving it to you, but it's very costly. And so as you go to the market of ideas and the market of kingdoms, and you say to Jesus, I just want a little bit of that. But Jesus is saying, take a big, as much as you can carry. Take from the gospel, take from me, take from the kingdom as much as you can. And don't hold back. Because the kingdom's going to be like this. As much as you grab now is as much as you're going to be given in multiplied times more. It's, if you were to go to the market, for example, and buy seed for sowing, you wouldn't go buy a little bit. You want to buy as much as you can because as you scatter it on the ground, you are going to reap the multiplied times amount of return of that seed. And if you do not sow anything, then the seed that you do have will be taken away from you. And so the message here that Jesus is saying is now is the time to get out the big baskets and to get the biggest measurement that you can and take it with you of the kingdom. And don't hold back. Take as much of it as you can. If you don't take it now, then everything you have, your life will be taken away. So Jesus is life. It says in John chapter 1, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So as you take of him life, then you are getting for yourself multiplied more life. If you do not take of him, you will lose the life you have. So this is what I call the opportunity of the kingdom. We saw that the parable of the lampstands was the, was the intention of the kingdom. The parable of the measurements is the opportunity of the kingdom. The opportunity is today. When it's gone, it's, it's over, and you'll be left with, with nothing. The third parable, he says here in verse 26, is the parable of the good seed. The first, this is another agricultural parable like this good ground, but this parable is focused on the seed. It's not focused on the ground, there are four, of which are four types. So in verse 26, he says this, and actually, side note, this is my favorite parable in all of Jesus' teaching. I love this parable. Maybe you'll agree with me. But he says this, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. When the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. What Jesus is describing here is the mysterious growth of the kingdom. Now, 
This is where parables are different than allegories so that we shouldn't get too wrapped up in the details. For example, the man who sows, it says he sleeps while the seed grows. Now, if you try to assign a person or a role to each person in the parable, you would say, well, God is the one sowing because he sowed the seed of Jesus, and now that must mean until the harvest that God is somehow disconnected and he's sleeping. Well, that's obviously not true. He's not trying to describe that. What he's trying to say is when a man sows and puts seed, he has nothing else he can do about it. He's going to go sleep, but the seed does its work on its own. So he's saying here there's a mysterious growth about the kingdom. This man doesn't know how it grows. He just sows it, and it grows. And he, and he talks about the stages of growth. If you say, see, look here, it says in verse um, 28, the earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. Some of those growth stages happen very um, under the ground, so you can't even see them. And others of them, you don't see the grain or the good of it until the very end. And so there's a mysterious growth about the kingdom that he's trying to explain here. This is, in a sense, God is sowing the good seed of the good news. So remember, Mark said this is the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So the good, this is about the good news. So the sowing of the good news, why has Jesus come into the world and what's going to happen? Now his disciples may assume um, that this is all going to happen you know, quite naturally the way they have expected kingdoms to grow. You know, in our understanding, kingdoms become powerful through political and military might. Right? You have to go through certain steps of fundraising and people persuading, and then you have to gather the most influential people, and then you have, there's just different steps. If you want to start a kingdom, you have to have an army to protect you, and all of these things that they would have understand, this is how the kingdom works. And we'll see this during the time that, you know, one disciple went to defend Jesus with a sword and cut off the ear of a Roman soldier, showing that he thought this is how the kingdom is supposed to happen. At another time, uh, the disciples thought they would call down fire on people who didn't believe. So they thought, this is how the kingdom is supposed to grow. And they had all these wrong ideas about how the kingdom of God is supposed to grow. And Jesus is saying to them, it's going to be mysterious to you. You're not going to understand it. In fact, you're not going to be able to do anything to make it grow. But the power of the kingdom is in the seed. It's in the message. The power of the kingdom is outside of you when you do it, when you sow it, and it will, stage by stage, grow and burst out of the ground and give fruit. So this is the mysterious growth in the kingdom, of the kingdom. And uh, there's a lot of, I'm sure you're thinking of applications as we go, so we're going to get to that, but I'm not giving any current applications yet. We'll get to that. Last Parable, verse 30, the parable of the mustard tree or the mustard seed. And this shows the contrast of the kingdom. Look in verse 30, he says, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown in the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Now, if you are like my son, Noah, he would probably immediately say, it's not the smallest of the seeds. There are smaller seeds. But this is the smallest of agricultural seeds that they, during that time, used to actually plant. So Jesus was saying, this is the smallest seed that you all use for agricultural purposes is the point. Now this seed was just a bit larger than a grain of sand. It is a tiny, minuscule seed. And it's planted, and it says here that when it's sown in the ground, it, but when it grows, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches. So you can see the contrast that he's pointing out, the size of the seed 
and the size of the tree that it produces. So the contrast of the kingdom is what is tiny and despised now will be the largest kingdom. Now you can imagine the disciples listening to that. And, you know, Jesus is describing and explaining these parables to the disciples. The crowd doesn't understand them. So any explanation he gives, like we saw in the last parable, he gave just to the disciples. And it could have been just the 12, or maybe there was a little bit wider circle of people he was describing it to. But those who had received and believed and had given themselves to him. And you can imagine that they were thinking, this is not a big group. Let's get, let's, there's 12 of us. And this is hardly worthy of the word kingdom, right? I mean, kingdoms, they were the Roman, king, the Roman Empire was the power of that day. So as they were looking at the Roman Empire and comparing it with this new Jesus movement, they surely were thinking, this is tiny. And Jesus is saying the contrast of the kingdom is that it's going to start like a tiny seed and grow into a massive tree. It's not by mistake that he says that massive tree is where the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Old Testament parallel or imagery here, the birds of the air are the nations. So um, I think it was Jeremiah toward the end of his prophecy says, talks about the birds being the nations around Israel. So these are what are going to come and rest in this tree. So these are sort of what I think are the meanings of these parables. Some of it that I described to you is not clearly said here, but I'm trying to understand from what we understand from all of Scripture what this could mean. So what then is common among these four? We talked about what's unique among the four. First of all, that there's the intention of the kingdom in the second parable, the opportunity of the kingdom, the mysterious growth of the kingdom, and the contrast of the kingdom. These are the four unique things that these parables were describing. But what is the purpose of grouping them together the way Mark did? And what was the big idea that Jesus was trying to tell us? And here's what I, I think it was. First of all, there's three things that I see as common threads connecting all of these parables. First of all, is that kingdom reality causes kingdom living. That's the first one. I'll tell you the other two um, as well, and then we'll go back to them. Kingdom timing causes patience. And the third is that kingdom glory causes focus. So those are the three things I think are common elements from these three, five parables that we can understand. So first of all, kingdom reality causes kingdom living. So we have a reality, and I want to just quickly go through all five of these parables and talk about our reality. First of all, if we think about the ministry of sowing the seed of the gospel of the kingdom, we have all experienced what Jesus said in the four types of ground, where you sow the seed and it seems that the seed is being wasted. You put it on hard ground, people don't receive it. You put it on stony ground and they show a little bit of interest and then it dies. You put it on thorny ground and they grow and they're excited but then they're just at one point get completely disinterested because of the cares of this world. And if you are like me, you might be, we, I think all of us would be tempted in our reality to hold back sowing and say we are wasting seed on four types of ground because three types of ground are giving no harvest and the seed is being wasted. And that is our reality. But kingdom reality is this. There is good ground, ground that when it gives a harvest will be worth all of what appeared to be wasted seed. So what does that cause us to do? It causes kingdom living where we say, sow, throw your seed of the gospel even when you think people are not receiving it, even when you think that it's hard ground, even when you can't see the fruit of it, even when you're the, the worst of it maybe when you're disappointed because somebody showed initial interest or they grew and seemed like they were really believers and then fell away. Those kind of experiences in kingdom work can completely cause us to say, enough with this sowing. 
And I have known pastors who have preached the gospel for decades who got to a point in their ministry where they just, where, where by all natural and obvious let's say purposes, had determined that the sharing of the gospel was just not giving fruit anymore. And so they were just going to focus on what was left and just imagine that the gospel wasn't working anymore. But the reality of the kingdom tells us that there is good ground, that when you keep sowing, God will give fruit. And then what about the lampstand? Well, we might think God is distant and he's hard to know, and he's hiding. And then we would be apathetic to our relationship with him. But the, God, the parable of the lampstand tells us that God is near, and he has come to us, and he is shining light into our darkness. And he wants to be known, and he wants us to see. He wants us to see him, and he wants us to see everything else because of him in our lives. And so kingdom living looks like this. It looks like turning to him and seeking for him. It, it looks like you may not be able to see him, but you can see all things rightly because he's there. Kingdom living is created by understanding Christ as the light of the world. Our reality, again, what about the measures? It says it will all work out for everyone in the end, right? We have this idea in our culture or I guess it's really natural in us to think that there are good people in the world, and especially on Mother's Day, we all love mothers, and we love our mothers, and we imagine that everybody loves their mothers, and so we want every mother to just, and we assume that every mother will just be good because they're a mother, and they do good for their children. But the parable of the measures gives us the kingdom reality that those who do not take of a large measure of Jesus and fully embrace him while the opportunity of the kingdom is there, whether they were a good person or not, whether they were a, a, a sacrificial person for others like we understand mothers to be or not, if they did not take of the Christ, if they did not receive of him into their lives and into their being, will be lost. And all that they had and all the good that they did have and could have done or did do will be lost. And so kingdom reality or kingdom living tells us take a heaping helping of Jesus and fill your bushel full of him. And do not take him in small measures and small amounts, but take as much as your arms can carry home from the market of Christ because he is now at the door and the opportunity is today. It also tells us that his opportunity is now for our neighbors and our friends and that the job is urgent because soon the opportunity will be passed. What about the measure of good seed? So our reality is that God is delaying his return and he is inactive. The reality of the seed is that it is working. It is slow, it is gradual, even imperceivable or imperceptible, but his gospel is having huge effect. Harvest is near. So imagine the disciples as they thought that, as they reflected on this parable. And Jesus told about the seed that was being sown. And now, as Mark is writing to believers in Rome, they are seeing this seed sown in Roman hearts that is giving fruit. And people are responding, and they're surprised. They thought it was a Jewish message. Here it's a Gentile. The, the Gentiles in all of the Roman Empire are beginning to come to Christ because the power of the message accompanied by the work of the Spirit has power in itself. And so kingdom living says, I don't know how, but I'm going to sow the seed, and I'm going to trust that this seed will work. And that was part of the reason Jillian and I 16 years ago, went to North Africa because I'd seen the gospel here, but to me, I thought maybe this gospel is culturally understood because, you know, we, we were just in very rural America where I am from in, in southeast Ohio, and it's like the gospel or Christianity is just part of the water. It's in the country music, you know? They don't, they, it's everywhere, church and Jesus, and is this just a cultural thing? Like, it's not hard to imagine why somebody in a culture like that might become a Christian, but would somebody leave a religion that's completely opposed, where they risk everything 
for, would that happen? Is the power in the message true? And in 10 years plus of serving in the, a very anti-Christian part of the world, we can say, I can say from now experience, that the, God, the power of the message of the kingdom is in the seed. It's not in me. It's not in my ability to explain it and my rhetoric. It's not in the, my, my, well, it's not in anything that I can do. In fact, I can sow it and then I can sleep. I can rest. I can go to bed. I don't have to be Jesus. Jesus is Jesus. And I can preach his message and he works. I don't know how. I don't understand it. And when he does, it's always incredible. So kingdom living says, sow the word. Explain about Jesus. Share his message. Monday night tomorrow, we, we're going to talk about the burial of Jesus. Talk to, to these children about his resurrection. And you think, what are the possibilities these kids from these families at this young and tender age where they'll soon forget, how can we possibly imagine that this will make any difference? Well, the power of the kingdom is not in anything else except the seed that you're saying. And as the Holy Spirit accompanies it, we can trust that it is giving fruit. And this is the kingdom living. The last parable, what's, what's this? So we might think in our reality that Jesus is small, that our church is small, that the reality in our culture is that we will have very little impact around us, that there is not much that matters, that these things are not exciting or, not, or they're a despised sort of thing. Kingdom reality is just watch. The growth of his kingdom, it is growing into a huge tree. And now we're part of a community here in this room that belongs to the wider body of Christ that is spread out over the world, numbers in the millions, and when it's gathered together with Christ, to, when he returns, it will not at all appear to be weak or tiny like that piece of grain. The kingdom reality is that what God is doing always starts out this way. It starts out tiny and small. It doesn't come in in a palace, it comes in through a manger. It doesn't come in with a big announcement in Rome. It comes to a few shepherds on a hillside. It comes as a small, tiny seed, and God is doing something incredible. And what you could see through, hist through history is that God's work, though starting tiny, though starting small, will be um, so large that it will give rest to the nations. And the kingdom's reality, the kingdom living, is that his kingdom is meant to give rest to the nations. It is meant to give rest to moms who need rest, right? Moms always need more rest. Where can you find the rest? It is in the kingdom, in the message of the gospel. These are the five kingdom realities that cause us to live kingdom living. That is something we see. Jesus was trying to tell his disciples the way that you've understood and the way that you've seen things needs to change. You need to have a new reality that causes you to have a new way to live. Christians should have a very distinct way of living in a different reality than their neighbors who don't know Jesus. And, and it, I don't just mean that they go to church while their, friend, while their neighbor goes to the mosque. I mean in every way our lives should be marked by a reality that the world can't see. Second thing that ties these parables together is the that kingdom timing causes patience. Three of these parables are parables about seasons of growth. One of them is about a marketplace, which has its own timing aspect. But three of them are about seasons of growth. And the marketplace one is about how you'll receive based on the measurement you take now. So, all, so four out of these five parables are describing the timing of the kingdom. Jesus was extremely interested that his disciples understand the timing of his kingdom was not what they expect. In fact, when he ascended to heaven, they asked him, when will your kingdom come? Like, when will you establish your throne here? Because we thought you were going to do it when you were alive, then you were crucified. Okay, that was confusing. 
Then you rose again, now, right? And he's like, it's not for you to know the time or the season that the Father has put in his power, but you will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. So during that time of witnessing, he's saying the timing of the kingdom is it's like harvest. It's like planting, and then it's like, it's like sowing, and then it's like waiting, and then it's like sowing and waiting, and then you think it's here, but there's waiting, and then his harvest is coming. His harvest is surely coming. So they needed to understand Jesus was coming to be sown into the world, and the harvest was not yet. The harvest was going to come later. 2,000 years later, we're still in that spot. And it is, it, it is, it is at the point where you say, were these kingdom, is this kingdom reality, this kingdom timing true, or has, Jesus, has God delayed his coming and he's not coming at all? Well, anyone who's a follower of Jesus says, despite all appearances, despite my greatest longings that he would return, he hasn't, and it's for his, but he is. He said he's coming, so he's coming. But when? Jesus is saying his timing, his kingdom timing, should cause patience. Patient sowing, not patient inactivity, because he was sending his disciples out, but patient sowing. The kind of patience that says, okay, I haven't seen his kingdom come yet. I haven't seen the harvest yet of the fruit of the, of the seeds that I've been sowing, but I'm going to keep on sowing because he's given me a kingdom reality. He's told me what he's doing, and he's given me a job to do during the, in the middle. And I will not be found not being patient. I'm going to wait for his harvest, harvest and do what he told me to do. So kingdom timing causes patience, and lastly, kingdom glory causes focus. Each one of these parables ends with a glorious ending. The four types of ground. There were three types of ground that were, it appeared the seed was wasted. But the one type of ground, it gave fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. What happens when you get a harvest? You have harvest celebration. The lampstand, the lamp was lit, it's going to give light. The measurements, the measurements were made, and then the reward is coming later. It's going to be a big multiplied reward. The, the seed that was sown, it's going to be sown, but then what's going to happen? He's going to sleep, he's going to wait, and then the harvest. He's going to bring the sickle, and he's going to harvest in the good fruit. And lastly, the, king, the, uh, the, the mustard seed. As it was sown, it grows into a huge tree with time, and it's a glorious tree. So kingdom glory causes focus. It is very, very easy to get to lose our focus in the work of ministry and to focus our ministry efforts whether it's mothers with your children, okay? Some of, some of you have small children. It is easy to think that what you have, what God has given you right there at that moment is what is. But really, it's not what it will be. And what's going to be is going to be glorious. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be fruitful. The, the seed of the gospel that you're sowing into these little kids' lives is going to be completely worth it. And, and it's a, we should rejoice as if the harvest is already here, but sometimes we're just so filled with worry and concern because we don't, we don't remember that at the end of every parable, every single one of these parables, the end is glorious, and it's inevitable. No man can do anything to stop the harvest. No man can stop it. So the work that you're doing, participating with Christ in his kingdom and in his service, whether it's through the church and in your home as, as, uh, as parents or teaching these kids and different, whatever it is from now and before and forever that you're doing in the kingdom of God, the result in every situation will not be frustrated. Your efforts will not be wasted. And everything that you have done will be gloriously rewarded by multiplied times more than you can imagine. Now you think, well, maybe I'm giving too much. And I've heard people say this in ministry. They say, I, I've, I've given and I've, and I've hurt myself. I've, I've given too much. And so they pull back and they stop giving entirely or they, they're, they're very careful with themselves now because they feel like what they've done has been wasted. 
They feel like all the effort that they've done in ministry has been poured out onto dry ground. The dry ground has sucked it up like water that went down into a crack and disappeared, and it's gone. But even that, and some of you have gone through difficult times in ministry. You've gone through uh, times in ministry you might even describe as burnout or complete, um, complete, I don't know, burnout, I guess is the best word I can think of to say it. But you've gone through things that have made you now cautious, and you kind of look back on those times, and you think, that was wasteful, and that was hurtful, and nothing good came of that. Well, we have not got to harvest yet. You have, even in those hard times, even in those difficult experiences that you think were wasted, have been planted into the, into the ground where God is working. And you will not see it with your eyes on this earth a lot of times, but it will give a harvest. And it will return to you multiplied more times than you ever gave out. And you should not look back on those times and think it was wasted. You should look forward to whatever you have, you have done for Christ in his name with his gospel has been planted and it is going to give a glorious return that you cannot yet see. His he is coming, our Savior and Redeemer is coming, and his reward is with him for those who serve him. So the parables are explaining to us, uh, we of all people should be most confident. We of all people should have every reason to be happiest and most expectant of what God is going to do. But so often, we are the people who take our cues from network television, and we think that we're losing, and we think, I'm not going to go into what, we, what all we think. You know what it is that you hear, and we think that the gospel is somehow taking a step back, but the gospel is advancing, and it should cause us to focus. Not to focus on the waste, but to focus on the reward that is on its way. Okay? So what? So much? Are you living in the full reality of his kingdom? That's a question for you. Are you living right now in the full reality of his kingdom? Now, I think none of us can say, yep, completely, every moment, all the time, right? That's why we gather together. This is an opportunity for us to say, Lord, I have missed recently some about the reality of your kingdom. I want you to put my focus back on your reward, on the work that's to be done now, on the coming harvest, and on the power of the seed, the power of the gospel. How would God want to correct your reality, your impatience, your lack of focus today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that you are, you are reality. The things that we see are not reality, but those things that are unseen that you are telling us about. I pray that you would speak to each of us about that thing that, we should, that you want to speak to us. There's so much here in all of these parables. We pray that you would speak to us through your spirit, teaching us, guiding us, rebuking us, encouraging us, leading us to wait for your appearance in Jesus' name.